Welcome to our podcast, Conversations About Student Mental Health. I'm Chris Leonard, clinical social worker working with adolescents for over 25 years. In this podcast, I talk with school administrators, educators, clinicians, and parents to open a dialogue that will help the growing number of students struggling with mental illness. In our most recent episode, I discussed how to cope with fear and anxiety in the face of a global pandemic with my fellow social worker and clinician, John Riley. In this episode, we'll be focusing on another widespread pandemic experience, grief. Grief is generally understood to be the complex combination of intense emotions and pain we experience in response to the death of a loved one or another significant loss. Grief is a natural reaction to loss that is so universal that it is experienced not only by humans, but by many animals. Wolves, elephants, baboons, dolphins, magpies, and sea lions are just a few of the many species whose grief reactions have been studied and documented. Yet, despite the widespread experience of grief, it is not widely understood. The COVID-19 outbreak has really brought grief to the forefront because nearly all of us are grieving in one or more ways. Many of us have loved ones who have died. Others have lost jobs, missed out on graduation ceremonies, or lost the daily social interaction that sustains us. We've been unable to engage in restorative activities such as going to restaurants, parties, concerts, shows, museums, parks, and until recently, beaches. The list is long. What we have all experienced is the undeniable feeling that the future is uncertain and that we really can't know when or if things will feel normal again. Life is never predictable, but we crave certainty and can feel quite lost when we feel so deeply unsure about how the future will unfold. Today, I'll be talking with my guests, Christina Jelly, an educator and community outreach coordinator. Hello, Christina. Hi, Chris. Great to have you. Hey, thanks for having me. And John Brandt, a mental health advocate. Hello, John. Hi, Chris. Good to have you. Thank you. It's great to be on. Excellent. So we'll be talking about how grief has affected Christina and John during the COVID-19 outbreak. We'll look at how grief affects young people and how we can help. So let's jump right in. To start off, Christina and John, I know each of you has experienced the death in your family during this crisis. Wondering if you could share a little bit about your experiences with us. Maybe, uh, Christina, you want to take it first? Yeah, sure. Um, so my experience happened kind of very early on before we were all kind of under quarantine. Um, so my great aunt, who is essentially my grandmother, um, was staying with my family and my mom uh, to watch my daughter during the week when I was working. So she came during the week of March 9th, was with us for a week, was kind of had like cold symptoms, but no fever, nothing really going on. I uh, was pretty much her normal self. And then um, that Sunday on March 15th, we ended up having to take her to the emergency room because she was having a hard time breathing. And at that point now, I can reflect on it. 
I wasn't putting two and two together that it could be coronavirus related because it was still pretty early on, especially based on like the information that we had at the time. And then sure enough, within 10 days, uh, she passed away on March 25th. Um, So during that kind of 10 day time span, it was pretty interesting. uh, The information that we were given and kind of what we went through in our family Um, because we weren't allowed to visit her. Um, There was one day where they said one family member could have come in, and then within a couple hours, we were given the information that we couldn't. Um, So we were really living day-to-day, just waiting for phone calls and updates of how she was doing um, with very little contact. Uh, So it was very difficult for us, kind of going from someone who was so involved in our lives and so healthy. She would have been 85 on May uh, 17th. Um, she was playing with my daughter, she was picking up a 30-pound baby, uh, and then all of a sudden she was taken from us so quickly and we had very little time to kind of say goodbye and process all of those things. Like, till this day I still kind of relive the moment when I dropped her off in the emergency room and at that point my mom was still able to go in with her. Um, kind of thinking about how I was so preoccupied with getting everything in the car to make sure they had like Clorox lights and gloves and all this other stuff. and. They were kind of do the, doing the preliminary stuff with her, and I didn't even get to say goodbye because she was so quickly put in a wheelchair and just kind of taken. Uh, so kind of all those in the moment and things that were going on, uh, now looking back on it, you can kind of process it a little bit better. Um, but, yeah, it was pretty difficult because she was taken from us so quickly and didn't have a really a lot of time or connection with her to say goodbye. Yeah, it's 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 almost like it was it was, you know, it's the kind of experience that somebody would have in an accident or something where one day somebody's there and the next day they're not. And there's just no opportunity to do the kinds of goodbyes or, um, you know, kind of rituals that we're accustomed to. So I'm really yeah, sorry about how like, it played out. Yeah, I think um, the other is kind of two parts, too, because the aftermath of all of that is. Traditionally, depending on um, your belief, but you have a wake or funeral or some sort or a shiva. And we didn't really get to have any of that because of all the regulations that kind of came out. And my family in particular, it's a unique case because my dad is a stem cell transplant. So we couldn't get together at all. Like there couldn't be two of us. There couldn't be three of us. Like we weren't able to have any services, um, especially because at that point, um, the people who were in the house with her were considered carriers. So we had to be under strict quarantine for the next like two to three weeks. So we weren't really able to have any services for her and still haven't been able to. Which is kind of a a loss in its own right. You know, you it's, you've already lost a loved one, somebody who was so close to you and now you're, you have to quarantine. Mm -hmm. So you, you know, that, that just kind of makes it even more profound. John, maybe you can share a little bit. Sure. Um, on April 9th of uh, last month, actually, um, my mom passed away, and it was it was a interesting uh, process. Very, you know, similar in some ways to Christina, and, and yet uh, some things were different. Um, my mom was 87, and she was uh, uh, had um, Alzheimer's disease, and she. Uh, she had experience in probably about five and a half years. So it wasn't, wasn't a very long time uh, from beginning to end. Usually it's, you know, it goes high as 12 years, 13 years, but she, um, she had recently just moved, um, 
from independent living into a uh, facility, uh, a memory care, where actually my father uh, lived the floor below her in independent living. And uh, up through um, when we moved her in January to, to memory care, uh, she was actually doing very well. Uh, she was eating. And we, we were very, uh, we felt very comfortable with the move. We also felt that she uh, was improving in some ways, not, not, not the disease itself, but she was uh, physically uh, healthy. Um, and then uh, right around March 15th is when the, when the, you know, the country, uh, uh, especially the state of New Jersey, uh, kind of shut down. Uh, they stopped allowing um, uh, visitors to come and see her. Um, there was a, a COVID um, out, outbreak in the building, uh, a floor below her, and they wanted to keep all the patients uh, uh, safe and away from, you know, us who could come up there and bring the, bring the disease uh uh, up there, and they didn't know very much early on. So, you know, it was ordered that nobody could visit. Um, and I think during those three weeks, uh, without seeing her, she really uh, kind of uh, deteriorated. And we, we never got a chance to uh, to see her uh, awake. Um, we were called right around uh, April 6th uh, that she wasn't doing well. Uh, up to that, what we were told she was doing fine, and she was eating so forth, but quickly uh, uh, she went down in three days uh, from you know from you know being bedridden to, to passing away. And to this day, we don't know whether it was the COVID virus she was, wasn't tested for. Um, we had hospice come in over those three days to uh, be with her, um, and we were able to go up and see her uh, the last three days and. We don't know to this point whether she was um, she had the COVID virus. She was not tested. Um, they went right to hospice, so it was very incomplete on how she died. We obviously the, the, the dementia uh, she had was was a, a big you know part of it. Um, and then the second story, like like um, Christina had mentioned, uh, for us it was it was we did have a funeral for her, um, although we're only allowed uh, three people. Um, we, we, we could, me, my brother and my father were the only three at the, at the cemetery, uh, to say goodbye. And it was, uh, it was very surreal. You know, the whole thing happened very quickly. We didn't expect it either. Um, uh, but at the same time, um, we feel a little bit comforted that she didn't suffer as much as that, that the dementia and Alzheimer, um, she had, she had times when she was lucid and kind of remembered things and then forgot things it was getting it was getting worse so she was having struggles with that so we, we were uh glad she wasn't in confusion and pain anymore so, mm. so, so that, i'm sorry john go ahead uh, um yeah so you know really some common threads between your stories um, and then some unique differences, uh, you know, that inability to say goodbye, the lack of access to the usual kinds of rituals and gatherings that we can can go through. Um, and then the difference, you know, the sense that Christina and her family had that her aunt was going to be with them indefinitely. And then the mixed the mixed bag that your family experienced, John, where there was some measure of 
okay, well, at least she's not suffering anymore. Um, but, um, but definitely both experiences uh, made all that much more complex by the social distancing and, and the, you know, the inability to get together. So typically we know uh, that, you know, people can go through five reckon, reckon, recognizable uh, stages of grief. And these were introduced by Elizabeth Kubler-Ross in her 1969 book on death and dying. And these stages are denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. Uh, I was wondering if we could talk a little bit about these stages and how you've seen them manifested, just, even if it was just one of them. You know, I'm wondering how these stages of grief aligned with your experience, um, you know, what it may have looked like or felt like for you or somebody you love, and uh, just anything you may have noticed about this, I think would be uh, useful for us to look at. Um, maybe, John, you want to take this one? Yes, go ahead, Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, I... I, I yeah, I mean those uh, those five uh, stages, you know, certainly felt them all at uh, some point uh, through the process. I think, you know, we're all dealing with some type of grief, even if it's the loss of our uh, of what our what our life was prior to the pandemic, um, and and the temporary situation we're in now. But but um, yeah, I, I, I did experience. You know, I think what was different was the, the and I think one area I, I definitely was the, the denial that it was all happening because the world was, you know, it is in flux and it was just a denial. Like, wow, maybe this isn't really happening. Um, but your body does, does really go through this process. Um, I, I, you know, I, I had a feeling of anger that they didn't know if she had COVID or not. Why didn't they test her, I asked. You know, and the, and you know, and the, and the feeling of depression, of course, losing a loved one, um, and you know, I, I don't know if I'm at the stage of acceptance fully yet. Um, I know my dad isn't. My my father, who's you know 88 years old, he's still uh, mourning and 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 feeling, um, you know, all of those stages. And I've seen so I've seen it mostly in. Um, as someone who was married for 68 years and lost his wife, um, which, you know, totally understandable, but uh, I don't think the acceptance part has really come around for him yet. Well, that's a, that's an important point. I think, you know, I think a lot of people, um, a lot of people kind of struggle with these stages of grief because first of all, people kind of assume that we go through them in a particular order. And I think people also assume that there are certain time frames that they follow. And the truth is that we don't necessarily experience them in any particular order. Uh, we tend to go back to a stage maybe that we've gone through and kind of revisit it. And then that whole notion of acceptance, uh, you know, people tend to think of acceptance. Well, if I've accepted it, that means it's okay with me. And I think with most losses, I don't think we ever get to a point where we feel, oh, this is okay with me. I think it's more kind of, Okay, this really happened, and and now I'm I'm kind of coming to terms with it. But grief is something we revisit again and again and again um, over our lifetime. So some really important points. Uh, Christina, what are your thoughts? Yeah, it's funny. Um, 
funny, I'm thinking about kind of like the five stages and I feel I went through a lot of that during the time when she initially went into the emergency room and then was placed into ICU and was put on a ventilator and it all happened so fast. And during the 10 day window where we were just waiting for phone calls and updates and we'd have little glimmers of hope that like, oh, her oxygen levels went up, like she's doing better. And then the next day it's like, nope, she took a turn for the worst, but it's in a matter of a couple hours. Um, I think I really went through those stages almost in that point because I was kind of preparing myself for the worst, but wouldn't admit that it was going to be happening. And I think a large part of like the bargaining process was I was thinking to myself, like, if you, like, please, if someone just a miracle, like if you let this happen, I can't, I can't tell you how many prayers I said, um, because she was such a good person. So for her to this to happen to her, I couldn't understand why, like I couldn't justify it. Um, I was angry, definitely. I hated the coronavirus. I still kind of do. Um, it's funny. I was saying to a couple of my coworkers that if I put myself in my student shoes, like especially transitioning back whenever we get to, like for me, um, I considered myself to be like a pretty mentally healthy person, kind of capable of a lot, like pretty self-aware. But I knew if I put myself back into my teenage body and I was back in school, I don't know if I could handle it if someone made a joke or someone was joking around about the virus and certain things and making comments. And I think I'd have a really poor reaction to it. And even now, um, I had a friend of mine kind of, someone made a really poor taste joke. I could, that's way I can put it. And I had to leave the room. Like I couldn't, and it was all through video. Uh, we were doing an online uh, trivia night, but I couldn't be there anymore. And I just had to remove myself from the situation because of how much it really hit home for me. Uh, denial was big. I just, I couldn't believe it was happening. I think my mom and I, we were in it together, kind of going through all of this. And my husband too, but, um, my aunt was really, her name was Lola Betty. <laughs> At least that's what you call her. We're Filipino, so Lola means grandma. So we'd call her Lola Betty. And I think we couldn't conceptualize that this could happen to someone who was so incredible and so giving and loving. Um, she really lived her life doing so much for others. So for a virus to take her so suddenly and like this, it was just hard for us to kind of come to terms with what was happening. And I think depression, um, I found myself, some mornings were much more difficult than others. Trying to get up, maybe you didn't really want to like wash your face all the time or do certain things and you didn't really see a point to things. But I think one of the things that really helped me was my two-year-old. I have a two-year-old daughter. So having to be awake for her and seeing the joy in her face and kind of helping me remember how much joy she brought to my little Betty and how much joy my little Betty brought to her, um, that kind of helped me through that time. Um, I think it was much more difficult for my mom because she knew her longer than she knew her own mother. Um, so I think her story is a little bit more difficult um, when you talk about kind of like the family members and John is talking about his dad, like this was definitely more difficult for my mom. And she had to go through all of this without her rock is the best way I can put it because she had to be distant from my father because she couldn't be around for him. Um, cause she's the primary caregiver for him because he's the stem cell transplant and she wasn't able to process all of this stuff with him. So as much as I could help her through things, she wasn't able to be with her husband who would typically help her through this. And they were high school sweethearts, so, well, they still are, but um, I think it's, it was much more difficult for her 
especially during these times, to be with your family and have those levels of support, uh, I think are so critical. And we weren't able to do that except for over the phone or a video call. So I think just the matter of having that hug sometimes makes all the difference. And I don't think any of us are kind of at acceptance yet. I have my little moments where I think I might see, um, but I definitely think a step forward kind of helps with, uh, we went to her house the other day, so I think that kind of helped in a sense to give us some sort of closure in a time where you can't really get any. <laughs> yeah. John, uh, thoughts there? Yeah. Um, yeah, it's really difficult. I just wanted to add, it's really difficult to get closure on, on a lot of this stuff. Um, and, and again, I mean, like you said, Chris, closure is a tough thing. You know, it's not final. It's not final. Um, so it, it, that's just my, my thought around that. Yeah. It, no, it's not final. And it takes it takes a while when you've lost somebody suddenly, and, and these were both sudden losses in some way, when you've lost somebody suddenly, I think it takes a while before it, the reality of it even sinks in. Um, I lost two people very close to me in my life to uh, accidents. You know, one was in a coma for about a week. One was just killed instantly. Um, and in both cases, for months after uh, the person died, I would have dreams where I was convinced I would wake up from the dream convinced that they were still alive. And, you know, just to come to terms with the fact that the person is even gone is so hard. You know, Christina, like you were saying, your aunt was so larger than life. It was so hard to bridge that with the notion that she had died and, and, and so difficult to come to terms with that. Yeah, to kind of go off that, Chris, it's funny. My mom said to me the other day that she still thinks she's going to call her. Like, because they spoke so much on the phone. So it's odd for her because she's like, sometimes they wake up and I think she's still going to call me today. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, I, I lost my brother 12 years ago to uh, suicide, actually. And uh, what's interesting that is I, I still sometimes wake up and think he's he's still around um so it really does take a long time and i don't think it, it was ever fun it's probably more get a little more seasoned to the situation and and understanding and you're not you know you're not in the grief stage um anymore but you certainly in this that person so i i never I, whenever anybody ever says closure to me i just don't really understand that or get that it's really it's a it's a really important point uh, it, it really is. It, it's just this thing that keeps unfolding throughout our lives. And it, and it revisits us at the most unexpected times. Yeah. Um, you know, Christina, you, you, uh, when you were talking a few moments ago, you, you alluded to something that was helpful to you, which was being there for your daughter. Um, and I'm sure you have other things as well. Um, but John, I, I wonder if you could share a little bit about uh, what was helpful to you, and then Christina, if you have additional thoughts, you can add in after John. Sure. Um, I think it was helpful to me is to maintain my, my sense of being and and, and the, the ability to be able to get up. And like Christina said, sometimes it's hard to do many things, especially when you're feeling blue. And, and then you add to the, you know, the pandemic going on. So, so, you know, but, but for me, it was like fighting through to try to stay consistent um, with myself um, and, and, you know, really practice, uh, you know, getting up in the 
morning showering, uh, getting work done, um, trying to complete things, uh, not to block out the situation, but just to maintain a sense of, you know, you feel good about yourself, you, you, you feel good, and that was including exercising and so forth. So for me, those were the those were the main things I, I, I tried to do and I'm still doing uh, to maintain myself through this and, and you know, including the pandemic that's going on and the, you know, and the, and the disappointment in my daughter's eyes that she's, you know, home, stuck with us, away from school and so forth. So it's, um, you know, I'm doing it for her as well, um, which seems to be working. We're, <laughs> we're getting along really well uh, with her under our roof and, uh, Part of that is just, you know, all of us maintaining a positive attitude. Yeah, I think for me, Chris, uh, a large part of it um, is crying. <laughs> that was yeah. definitely helpful for me. <laughs> uh, sometimes I screamed into a pillow occasionally, but kind of when you get over those initial things, and sometimes they keep happening, like it hits me at different times. Uh, and I think it's also been helpful during this period, especially if I didn't lose someone, has been my support network, whether it's my coworkers, uh, my family, my friends, like the amount of support that I got from people really helped me to kind of dealing with this and just being able to talk to people. And it wasn't ever like someone really pressured me to speak about it, but they just always let me know they were there. And when different people would reach out, or maybe it was like kind of a little moment that I had, but being able to talk to people and kind of process things really helped me. Uh, my husband and I call, there's this loop that we go on by our house and it's a four mile walk and we call it our therapy session. Um, and I think that's so important and critical for me to kind of have that time to just clear my head, process everything I'm going through, talk about it in like a non-judgmental space, get everything off my chest. Um, we've had some pretty deep conversations and I do think that's been a large part of it too to kind of help me process everything that I've been going through. Um, and I also found something that was helpful, and I especially did this on um, her birthday because she would have been 85 on May 17th, and I wrote her a letter. So I think writing, too, was able to allow me to kind of get everything that I wanted to say to her and everything that I wish I had said and all those, I don't want to say it like you feel guilty about it, but it's the things that you wish you would have done or wish you would have said before it happened. Um, I kind of had my time to write to her and tell her what I would have said, to just kind of put it out there. Um, and sometimes it's as simple as journaling. Other times I actually wrote like an Instagram post, but I didn't have to post it for the world to see. I just wanted it to be written somewhere for a little temporary moment for her to see it or for her to know it was there and kind of put it out into the universe. Um, so that was kind of a couple of things that have been helping me so far. That's great. I mean, I think actually between you, John and Christina, you've provided a good checklist of things that people can do to take care of themselves in the face of loss. You know, one of them is being there for others and, and remembering to be there for others. Another is attending to routines and in particular routines of self-care. Um, a third one would be allowing yourself to experience the full range of emotions that you're having and recognize that all of those emotions are just emotions and they're not things to correct or try to get rid of or suppress, but really to experience. Uh, the fourth is to talk with others, um, talk and listen and 
And then finally, there's that, that talking to the person who you've lost, you know, whether it's through writing a letter or, you know, a journal or, or something, or even just talking out loud, you know, there's all sorts of ways that we can talk to uh, people we've lost, but those are all really excellent uh, ways of dealing with grief. Um, so thank you for sharing those. So one of the things that um, one of the things that we wanted to touch on today is we wanted to touch on the experience of children and how to help them. Um, you know, one thing we know is that children may grieve in ways that are distinctly different from the ways in which adult adults grieve, um, or in ways that aren't easily recognizable. You know, so this and there are some misconceptions about the way children grieve as well. Um, we do know that children grieve, grieve, but one way in which it may look different is that some children may seem not to react at all, but sometimes a child who's not reacting may perceive that, that he or she doesn't have permission to talk about what's going on because nobody else is talking about it. We often try to protect kids, um, from grief and sometimes our efforts to protect them, give them a message that mm, this isn't something we're going to talk about. So a, a way to engage a silent child might be to talk about how we're feeling. Uh, the other thing that kids do is sometimes they grieve during brief intervals or at an unexpected time. For instance, you know, a, a child whose grandmother died months ago may experience a, a routine fall going down the slide on the playground, get up crying and say, I miss grandma out of nowhere. So I'm just... Uh, I'm just wondering anything that either or both of you have noticed about how children grieve and, and maybe any advice that you might offer parents and caregivers. Yeah, I think uh, an important thing, oh, go ahead, John. <laughs> um, I, I, I guess, you know, you're, you're, you're right, Chris. I mean, children do grieve so differently and, and uh, um, Years back, my uh, my brother-in-law passed away. Um, my my wife's sister's husband, and the and the kids were very young. Um, and my nephew, I spent a lot of time with. Um, we we discussed a, a lot of things um, about his father and so forth. But I could tell that he was holding on to things. And it was kind of interesting the way you just said that. You know, Paul. There was a time he was playing sports as a young guy who broke his arm. And uh, when he came running back to the to, to the sidelines after his arm, he actually said, "I miss my dad." You know, it was in that in that crying um, feeling, being in pain, his his emotions came out, um, which he didn't show up to them. Um, so I, I, you know, at the time I thought he was handling it very well, but I didn't realize he never really got to express his emotions. He did the talk thing, but he never expressed his emotions and the, and the crying and the sadness. Uh, broke through and it was actually, you know, and then when we saw that kind of water start flowing, we, we looked at him and said, it's okay to do that, buddy. You could, you can continue to do that. So that was my, um, notice. And I guess they all react, children and adults all react different ways to it. Um, but I, I absolutely see that, um, with children where, you know, once, once it opens up, you, you need to maintain that with the child and let them know it's okay to do that. Yeah, I completely agree, John. I think I think there's moments where you can't 
grief is different for everyone. Um, and I think, especially with children, you, it's very unpredictable um, when I think they're going to kind of go through that for them. And sometimes it might be frustrating for themselves because they can't, they don't know what's going to happen for themselves either, or what might trigger something or something might remind them of something and then finally allow them to feel those emotions. Um, I know, especially sometimes for some children, maybe they're the ones in the household who kind of need to step into almost like a parenting role. So if they have to be the role model for younger kids or someone else in the family, maybe they're not allowed to process those things because they have that thought that I have to stay strong for everybody. I have to be this person. I have to be the rock for everyone. And then at some point they'll have that moment, whether it's simple as falling down on the playground or maybe they fail a test or a teacher makes a comment or a friend makes a comment or something happens and then it allows them to kind of have that moment. Uh, so I think it's really important for parents, caregivers, anyone who's really working with children to just kind of be mindful of situations that could be going on or information that you are privy to and kind of keep that in mind because sometimes there's a lot underneath certain behaviors and actions that happen um, that we all may not be considering and sometimes you can get wrapped up in your own uh, self and things that are going on for yourself. Uh, but just to be mindful of what the students and the children who you come in contact with and interact with and know that they could have a moment and you could be that person that they open up to and how important it is to allow them to feel their feelings and just talk to them and be there for them and be that support person for them because they may not have had that when the initial trauma or the initial moment has happened. Um, so I think the important thing is just having those open lines of communication and being supportive. That's great. So, you know, just to sum up, you know, you were talking, you were both talking about how so often the grief emerges in, in an unexpected way or in an unexpected moment. And that one of the things that we need to do to help kids is we need to, we need to be ready for those opportunities. And, and let them express what they're feeling and encourage them to express what they're feeling. And then the other point you were making is to really think about what's the meaning of this experience for this child and, and, and where are they in their family where, in terms of how this might impact them. And then that, that piece about behavior, you know, behavior is like an iceberg, right? Because sometimes a behavior seems larger than life, but whatever we're seeing that behavior is really just the tip of the iceberg and 90% of what's going on that's leading to that behavior, we can't even see. So really kind of being curious about what lies underneath and what may this, might this be about for this person can help us you know, really be there for them in the most helpful manner. So, um, you know, one of the things I talked about at the beginning was that grief is really a normal response to loss because it is. But sometimes it can, you know, obviously one of the stages of grief is depression, but sometimes, you know, a situation in which a person is grieving can really cross over into a, a more, a deeper, uh, more sticky depression. Um, and so I think a question for us to look at is how we know when a person needs mental health intervention. So I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, um, you know, on, on my end, I mean, my dad, uh, you know, elderly, lost his wife and so forth, and we're, we're, we're monitoring that now. He seems depressed. We're, we are having a uh, 
talked to to a uh, a therapist uh, just to get some um, some thoughts around where he is on in, in the stages of, of grief. But I, you know, I also think about you know grief as we said in the beginning, grief isn't just a loss of someone; it's just being could be a loss of what life was, you know, prior to the pandemic or anything like that. And I think that, you know, I know a lot of adults going through um, uh, feeling depressed over this, whether it's a loss of job, as you mentioned, so forth. I, I can only imagine um, where their children are um, and, and how that effect um, is, you know, much higher in, in the younger generation and where they look at it um, and, and fear. I mean, we're all in uncharted territory right now. And, like, you know, we don't know what what exactly is going to happen tomorrow. And kids don't know whether they're going back to school in the fall. Um, we know, you know, the, for the foreseeable future, they're not uh, going to school coming up. So it's it's a very interesting situation and and i could see that that grief and fear of the unknown um developing into depression and i guess it's it's, you know i guess trying to figure that out is probably the biggest uh obstacle that we have is to understand where 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 this child or where this adult is um on the scale uh, of of feeling that way those are good thoughts go ahead christina well, I was going to say to go off of that, I think it's important, too, because we kind of talked about the things, both John and I, what we've kind of been doing to help us go on day to day, the daily routine, whatever it might be. I know for myself, like, it was difficult to make the transition back to work, but I kind of set myself up a goal and say, like, okay, today's the day, like, you've done it, you can do this, like, set kind of short-term goals for yourself and it kind of gets a little bit easier and especially when you get back into those routines and some sort of like normalcy in a sense. Um, But I do think when you're thinking about when a person might need a mental health intervention, it's when those feelings of grief, whether it's from a loss of the death in the family um, or it's just the loss of something you were looking forward to, whether it was graduation, kind of, Uh, the school year, um, things you were looking forward to, kind of anything. Uh, It's when they kind of look at it in a sense where it consumes you. Uh, So when the person kind of perseverates on it a little bit too much, and that's the only thing they can focus on during the day, and then they kind of slowly start to withdraw themselves from family activities. They're not coming downstairs for every meal. Um, They're not engaging with their family like they used to. They're not calling their friends as much. Uh, their friends reach out to them. They don't really get a response sometimes. Uh, maybe your like eating habits change. You go to the fridge and pantry a little bit too much. Maybe you're not really eating at all, and you're just spending all your time underneath your sheets and staying away from everybody because that's just easier for you in the moment. Um, and I think it's okay to kind of have those times, but it's when it's consistent Um over a significant time period and when it starts to really impact your daily living and daily function. Um, so I think it's kind of important. We're talking about our ability to talk to others and have that support network. Um, but when you kind of don't have those things in place and you're not self-aware and you have that inability to kind of talk about what you're going through, um, that's when these other signs can start to pop up. And that may be an indicator that you do need more 
um, help in a, another level of intervention to kind of help you through what you're going through. Like, I know, at least for me personally, um, I said, like, going on my walks or, like, my therapy sessions, and I truly believe that, and it's so important for me and my mental health, especially because I'm exercising, exercising, I'm getting outside, I'm limiting my screen time, I'm enjoying nature, I'm bonding with my husband and my daughter, um, and if I didn't have those moments, I think, personally, I would definitely seek a mental health professional, whether it be a therapist, mental health advocate, um, anybody just to talk to, because I think that's an important process. Excellent. Excellent. So you've both, you've both hit on some, uh, important things, uh, to look for, you know, for a person. Uh, certainly if a person starts to isolate or withdraw, they're not talking, they're not engaging, um, inability to perform any activities of daily living, getting out of bed, taking care of oneself, um, changes in eating habits, you know, either eating a lot or not eating at all. Uh, certainly suicidal thoughts uh, would be a, a, a red flag. And then even, you know, even a, a sudden change in somebody's demeanor, because sometimes when somebody's really in crisis, they'll get unusually cheerful. Um, and that can actually be a sign sometimes that somebody is, you know, when they've been really in this terrible place and then all of a sudden out of nowhere, they're cheerful. Sometimes a suicidal person can get to that point when they've made up their mind that they're going to carry out a suicide. And, um, you know, that even, even that is something to look for. Um, but if, of course, if we have any doubts, it's a good idea to check in, uh, with a mental health professional. Um, so, you know, in a nutshell, during this time, we, we're dealing with these circumstances that are shifting almost daily. It's so important for us to check in with friends and loved ones as, as you know, frequently, daily. Um, and now, you know, I think we're all hopeful at the prospect of reopening, and this is good, um, but we're all going to need to remain attuned for signs that those in our care may need some extra support moving forward. I just wonder, uh, Christina and John, you know, it's almost time for us to end for today, but I'm just wondering if you have any other thoughts that you'd like to share. Um, I guess I'll start uh, just that. Oh, sorry, John. I'm taking this one. Uh, <laughs> uh, I just wanted to say, like, just everything that my family's been through that I've kind of been through and kind of seeing the strength in things and especially in my students and the things that people are managing day to day um it's just important to remember it's not permanent uh we're like this too shall pass you sh we're gonna move on things are gonna be okay um i think the things that i think about now a lot is like how would my little buddy want me to live my life like she wouldn't want me to dwell on this she wouldn't want like she's gonna i'm gonna miss her obviously every single day and i do um, but I kind of think about how she lived her life and what she did for other people and how I can kind of carry that on. So I would just tell people to just be supportive of one another, be respectful of one another, uh, really support each other during this time, and really focus on you. Like I think now is an important time where you can kind of take the time and be selfish a little bit to yourself. And maybe you pick up a hobby or maybe you kind of focus on something. You always wanted to start a new skincare routine. Or maybe you wanted to pick up training for a marathon. Whatever it is, you kind of have the time right now if you allow yourself. Um, and really focus on yourself because you're worth it. 
so I think that's what I would tell people. Good stuff, John. Yeah, I, I guess when when I look at it, you know, I, I think that you know whether it's losing a loved one and grieving that, or or anything going traumatic in our lives. Um, I've always learned one thing that, that there is a light at the end of the tunnel. You may not see it um, right now, um, but there will be. The, the sun does come out. Um, and I think that knowing that and being steadfast, understanding that, um, is that things will get better and things will uh, change. When I said, for now, you know, the, the, the closure on somebody's life. Losing someone, of course, that there's never, I, I don't call that actual closure, but I think there's a point where I can look back now and go, wow, when I think of that person, I actually look, look at it, not their death, but their life. Um, so I think for me, it's always been pushing forward, even though, you know, possibly going through and, you know, the present situation doesn't look good and all these things. There is another day, and, and it may not um, feel like it's tomorrow, but there is another day, and there's another day to rise up. So I, I, I just want to express that to everyone, whether it's adults, children, everyone that's going through any uh, uh, situation right now, um, which is totally understandable. Um, but at the same time, we have to put it in perspective and realize, as Christina said, this too shall pass. Yes, it really is important to remember that this is not a permanent situation. And uh, that whole idea of things being impermanent, it's hard of, it's part of what makes it hard for us to cope with loss because we kind of want a sense of permanence sometimes with some things. When it comes to people we love, we want, we want them to be permanent. When it comes to situations like a loss or grieving or pain or coronavirus, we want it to go away. Uh, we don't want it to last. Um, and we, we do know that, that, that it won't. Um, but Christina and John, I really want to thank you for taking the time to speak with me today and sharing your own experiences and thoughts. Um, I, this has been really, uh, helpful information, uh, for our listeners and, uh, listeners. I want to thank you for listening and please do join us for future conversations about student mental health. Goodbye for now. Conversations about student mental health is brought to you by Sage Thrive, partners in school-based mental wellness. You can find the show notes on our website at www.sagethrivetoday.com. You can also suggest topics for upcoming episodes of the podcast. We'd love to know what issues related to student mental health you want to hear more about.